The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody, from Metropolitan New York City on a very lovely uh, late summer afternoon. Uh, We are welcoming our listenership to our program, and today's topic is really sort of a fusion of two themes that we have addressed in various various programs. Um, One, of course, is uh, Mayan archaeology, which is a focus of some of the cutting-edge research in uh, in archaeology today generally and certainly in uh, New World archaeology. It is one of the main centers for understanding culture change and the interaction between culture change and environmental transformation. Uh, The advances in that field have been chronicled in a variety of high-powered journals and in a number of also more popular TV programs and, and journals as well. And we've talked about the Maya and the advances in that particular domain uh, for in at least three or four episodes in the program. The other topic, however, that I think integrates very nicely into this is the uh, survival and the perpet- the, uh, the continuity of long-term research projects in archaeology. These used to be very widespread or certainly much more widespread than they are today. And as we have talked about in many cases, budget cutting and uh, in some cases sort of a lack of priority for archaeological projects, which of course we bemoan, uh, are responsible for cutting back on a variety of projects. But there are some very wonderful long-term, long-standing projects that really sort of chronicle advances in archaeology as well as the advances in knowledge of ancient civilizations and emergence and uh, development in the human condition. Condition. Uh, my guest today has been working for many, many years, probably in, a, in excess of 20 years actually, on a long-term research project in the Mayan area. Tom Guterjohn is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Texas at Tyler, and he is the president of the Maya Research Program 
also referenced as the MRP. He directs the uh, the, pro- the blue the uh, Blue Creek Archaeological Project in Belize, which focuses on a variety of topics, including the structure of Mayan cities, landscape archaeology, which again is a topic that we've addressed in many many programs, and of course this being the Mayan the Mayan heartland and and research area, there are major concerns with wetlands and agricultural production and systems as well. The project that Tom is directing is focused on human on student training and conservation of archaeological sites in the region. So it's it's pretty well uh, centered in a lot of the areas that we have been trying to convey as that are significant for archaeology and the directions that archaeology is taking in the 21st century. Dr. Gudijan received his PhD from Southern Methodist University and has published extensively on Mayan archaeology. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you, Joe. Thrilled to be here. So, Tom, give us some insights on the uh, your project, your Mayan research program, and what uh, the MRP, rather, and what it has done, how it started, how you came about it, and, and just give us some baseline background, if you would. Well, you, uh, you, you captured a great deal of it really well by... by uh, by, with your point that so much has changed in the way we go about things and what we did 20 years ago is so different than what we do today. Um, we started the, I started the program, to be honest, 24 years ago. Uh, this next summer will be our 24th field season. Um, out of having spent a previous several years in police and simply as a funding apparatus, um, we, we recruited some volunteers and some students to come with us. I think there were 14 um, to to assist in in understanding the Maya site of Blue Creek. Well, obviously, we didn't get very far with 14 people the first year, but we kept going. We kept going, and funding increased and funding improved. And now we will typically have a staff of 15 or 20 people and 70 or so uh, people in our research station at any given minute, so a hundred some students and volunteers over every summer, and it's it, it's a wonderful thing because my students, my own from my university, who go tell me this is a crash course in not only my archaeology but archaeology around the world, and at the same time, uh, we are happily engaged with collaborative efforts with some wonderful scholars, a couple of which you have interviewed on this show, who are assisting us and leading us, and we're leading them sometimes, into all new avenues of understanding. And some of this is partially because of technological changes. Some of it is what I call intellectual capital. Um, Intellectual capital is what you gain by staying in the same place for 20 years. Um, Some 15 years ago or so, I was um, considering the opportunity of moving the program and realized pretty quickly it would take five or six years to have the same level of intellectual capital in a new location that I did there. And with the baseline we have, we could do much more interesting and nuanced things, and, and we are, and that's 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 our that's our goal today, and then I'm, I am thrilled to say we are training some of the people who are now teaching in universities throughout the United States, which is kind of thrilling to do. 
And I, I guess, Tom, I, what, what really impresses me, and I think uh, it goes to sort of the foresight that you probably had when you started, but certainly developed in greater, uh, in greater scope, if you will, as you were moving along, is, is actually tracking the changes in the profession through time. And it seems to me that you've been able to adjust your program to not just funding, but to trends in archaeology, to methodological advances, to problems that we're trying to solve constantly. And you essentially have a laboratory for doing this sort of thing. How do you, how do you, how do you mold it? How, what, what kind of changes have you seen since the program first started in 1992? And how do you make the adjustments? I think that um, uh, at one point that is simply taking a deep breath and, and seeing what happens. When we started the program in 1992, I had very, very specific and clear objectives. I wanted to deal with <clears throat> what was the physical layout of a Maya city, and I wanted to deal with how those pieces interacted with each other. You know, no matter where you live, whether it's New York City or Tyler, Texas, if somebody asks you what your city is like, you end up describing it by the shopping district, the, the elite residential district, the poor people's district, the, 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 the uh, administrative center of the county and that sort of thing. Those are right. structural components. And I wanted to be able to describe a Maya city in the same way. After some years, I, I really think that I made a lot of progress in doing that. After that, I quit telling people what I wanted them to do if they wanted to become a member of the project. And I started asking people, what do you want to do with what we already have if you become a member of the project? And it's remarkable <clears throat> how inventive and creative people are when you give them the opportunity to be. And that has led us down all sorts of wonderful paths. Um, I'll cite only one, and it's one that I haven't been working with today intensively again. Um, your former guests, Tim and Cheryl Beach, are leaders in the field of ancient Maya wetlands agriculture. And we are working hand in glove together and have been for a decade. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity for them, for me, to get from them these great ideas that we embed in all of our other work. Um, hopefully, even the other way around, where my insights and our archaeological data bear on what they're trying to learn. And we take that and we go, and we're collaborating with five or six or so different groups of people right this minute on very disparate things um, in the same framework. And the outcome is just wonderful. I think one of the impressive elements, and you'd mentioned the beaches, who I know pretty well, um, they too are very strongly attuned not just to the methodological, technological advances that uh, that are clearly um, being displayed in, in much of the uh, Mayan heartland and in the peripheries as well. But they're also doing the same kind of thing that you're doing. I mean, they're taking students from various backgrounds, they're slotting them into positions, and like you say, they, uh, they're attuned to what people actually want to do with their work. But what really intrigues me and what, what I think a lot of people would like to know is what is the organization how do you set up an organization how do you bring together volunteers uh, and professionals how do you do that <clears throat> well that's a um, 
you know, at, at first I think you do it by the, the seat of your pants. It's, it's, uh, we, we started small. We started with word of mouth. We started with, um, um, actually, we, when we started, we were asked by Earthwatch to give them a proposal for doing basically the same thing. We did that. I did that, and my co- my collaborators at the time did that. And in the end, they they decided not to fund us because they had somebody else who was uh, who, who was not leaving their fold that they thought was. Well, we took a look at the situation, so we can do this. We can, we can do the same thing. We can let people know who we are. We can recruit people. And we can bring them in, and we can make it worthwhile for them. And we could probably do it a lot less expensively than Earthwatch, which is what we still do. Um, so, so did it follow the Earthwatch model? Did it follow the Earthwatch model? I think originally we began to follow the Earthwatch model, but then we quickly moved away from it. Um, in part because we just simply attracted many, many, many students rather than adult professional volunteers. We still attract adult professional and volunteers and retirees, but some 75 or 80% of the people that come to our programs are, are undergraduate students looking for opportunities to, to learn about something that they can't at their home institution. Typically, they'll come from smaller schools that don't have a field program in middle America, but middle America is where they want to go. And these, it, it, it has become like a family. It has become a situation where people come in and you can see their eyes the first day they're there. They're wondering if they've done the right thing with their life. <laughs> and then within a few days, they are um, so bubbling and excited. And and then five or seven years later, when they're still coming back every summer, you recognize that you have created something that is, in fact, a, a core part of their life. Um, and, and, you know, I can't, I've lost track of how many marriages and such have been created by meetings amongst these people. Some 3,000 people have come and gone through our organization over the years, and, and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And that's great. But, again, we're a research and education organization, so the research is the first part, and the education is the second. And you can't have one without the other. Um if you're doing cutting-edge research and you're teaching people about this cutting-edge research, they go off and, and perpetuate it by going on to graduate schools, to doctoral programs, to teaching positions, and, 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 and learning from it and doing it. And they come back and they become our staff members and they give us new aspects of research. So it's a wonderful... Um, <clears throat> it, has, it has gone beyond what a single person can do. It is what's happening because of a uh, an energy that the place has just created that is it's well past me. It's it's I, I get very little credit for the the wonderful place it has become. Yeah, but you are the architect of this thing, and um, as such, I'm uh, assuming that a lot of your time is involved in organization, to some degree administration, fundraising, and really sort of engineering a project like this that has to change with the times. How do you do that? Do you have a structure? We do. Of course, my research program is a 501c3 corporation with a national board. Um, we have a wonderful person named Colleen Hanratty who is constantly 
dealing with getting us out into the public and on social media, who is also a doctoral candidate and one of our lead researchers. Um, we have people who have stepped up to be on board to participate and to help in the, within the structure of the Meyer Research Program who are... Um, uh, who often may come up and ask if they can do something. You tell them what to do and let them go, and they become very, very, very helpful. So the structure is there, but it's a bit loose, I would think. From a, It's not a corporate office with banks of offices with secretaries and that sort of thing. It's a, it's a, it's a loose affiliation of a great number of people who all work together very, very, very well. Um, a good thing about that, by the way, is that, of course, anyone can join our program. Um, and the cost of doing that is, is tax deductible. We work very hard for that, and we think it's worthwhile for the people who can take that tax deduction. Um, and, and, and we're in the field every single summer. From early June until early August, we have four two-week sessions every single year, and um, we, we love having people come join us. We can take something like 40 people at each of those sessions, um, and it's not that expensive. It's fifteen hundred dollars for uh, for one session, um, and we welcome everybody there. And I assume, and from what I've heard, and and you know, there, it's gotten a fair amount of publicity. You have uh, you have a semi permanent staff and and people who are used to the system and and basically and. And they come back, as you said, they come back every year. I'm curious about that. And we will get into more questions of research and organizational mechanisms with this very fantastic project that um, Tom Agudajan has developed in Belize. After these words, uh, stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Join Dr. Linda Iniguez every week for the Shrink Wrap Forum. This show discusses topics that you wouldn't normally hear in today's media. In the forum, virtually no topic is off-limits. We invite you to join us and participate or dive into the stream where we value independent thought, talk to those people that are making a difference, and explore ideas considered outside the box. The Shrink Rep Forum can be heard live every Monday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Ah, a nice glass of wine is very refreshing after the end of a long day. But have you ever considered the story behind the wine? Tune in to Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio with your hosts, Roger and Donna Beery. You'll meet some of the people behind the world's wineries, travel the wine country, and learn more about that glass that you're enjoying. Roger and Donna will also give would-be vintners a behind-the-scenes look at starting a winery. Bacchus and Beery Wine Radio airs live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. My guest, uh, Tom Guterjohn, is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of Texas at Tyler, and he is uh, the head of a marvelous program called the Maya Research Program, and we have discussed in our early segment how that program works and what drives it and, and, and how it's structured, and it's one of these marvelous long-term projects that get sustained largely through, uh, and, and uh, you know, I, I want Tom to take some credit for this, through his initiatives and his understanding of really how the world of archaeological research and uh, public outreach function and how you sustain projects that are longer term, which we don't have many of anymore. And I think one of the major advantages of having a project like this is you are able to address major issues in archaeology uh, and take the time that's necessary to do it, because very often in this this quick and dirty world, we just, uh, in archaeology, we just address immediate questions, things like conservation, preservation, and we get into questions of social complexity, but we don't do it in a way that is as comprehensive as I think Tom has been able to do it because of the nature of, of how his project works. And Tom, one of Tom's interests is the... Uh, the well-known issue of the Mayan collapse. So, Tom, how do you, how have your ideas on the Mayan collapse changed, and how does your project give us sort of a blueprint for doing that, given that you have such a long-term um, ability to address this problem in, 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 in great detail? Well, Joe, as, you know, as, a, as a step before that, you know, it's really hard to imagine an archaeologist dealing with the Maya and living in our world and not having some interest in the Maya collapse. It just, you know, we have stresses, we have issues, we have things that we should be concerned about. What do they deal with? Um, so about a decade or so ago, I simply sat back and said, what are the biggest problems that we can focus our work on? And ever since then, we've been doing that in a number of areas. And, and of course, as you said, one of them are the events and processes that led to that collapse at roughly A.D. 850 or so. Um, we can't document everything throughout the Maya area, but we can document in all of our excavations in northwestern Belize, which, by the way, <clears throat> we're looking at several hundred square kilometers that we're actually working in at any given time. So it's a pretty large area. Um, we can look at documentable information that tells us about what happened up to the, the collapse, and maybe that gives us a window. And one of the obvious things is, is we have increasing and increasing and increasing population. In the late classic period, the population was soaring. We see that not just in our area of research, but throughout the southern Maya lowlands. Just 
you, know, you cannot walk around very long without kicking over a house, kicking at a house mound that dates to the late pre-classic. Uh, it, it, the population density was like suburban United States. Um, in addition, at Blue Creek, we found that we have new communities being founded in the late classic that are in terrible resource-poor areas. As you kind of suspect, the people who have been there for hundreds of years had taken the good stuff, taken the good resources, the good agricultural soils and settings. People that came along later had lesser and lesser and lesser advantageous situations. Well, that tells you the population's increasing. We also see processes like erosion. Every time in a plowed field in a tropical rainstorm, we see tons of soil being moved, and this has to have affected them. <clears throat> we see, um, in some cases, very early on, we see large-scale erosion of soils, and the consequence of that is the ditching of the soils after the fact, not before the fact, that our mutual friends, Tim and Cheryl Beach, have documented. So what we find is an increasing set of stresses as we get to the end of the classic period. And there's something that tilts the whole thing over. And it's not as simple as, well, as some people would like it to be. Yes, there almost surely was lower drought conditions, but no more severe than drought conditions that they'd endured before. Yes, there were political strife. Yes, there was economic strife. But again, no single thing is the, is the tipping point, is the silver bullet to understand why the Maya civilization rather abruptly gave it up. One thing we're finding, and this is one of these new uh, techniques we're going to be able to use, the last act of, a, of, of uh, occupation at many of the sites we work at was the uh, deposit of hundreds of thousands of uh, pieces of broken pottery, hundreds and thousands of smashed pots up against the sides of walls of buildings. Well, that's the very last moment. We don't know the details of exactly why they did it, how they did that, but we know that nobody was walking on that after that moment until we arrived. Right. Um, if we could date that, then we could sequence the events of the collapse. And what we're trying to do with one of these new techniques using it uh, OSL, optical spin luminosity, we are trying to actually date the ceramics to tell us when that event happened. And did this happen overnight, over 100 years, over in some particular definable order? Um, we don't know the answer to that yet, but that's one of our next big steps that we're taking. I think that you're, you're pointing to a lot of really interesting developments here. I know that uh, certainly um, we have... Many people have the misconception that a lot of the indigenous civilizations collapsed immediately after the Europeans arrived. And, and I think certainly in Mesoamerica and many parts of North America as well, we're starting to see that that's not the case. That a lot of the internal stresses were generated because of population expansion and stresses on the environment by advanced and more complex societies. And, and certainly Tim and, and Cheryl uh, have done some very interesting work in trying to explain how those 
potential collapses or the er an earlier collapse could have been mitigated by some of the engineering and the irrigation systems that that the Maya had initiated. Um, to what degree are we advancing our our scientific knowledge? about the changing balance between engineering the landscape and just the stress being too great for, for any kind of engineering to just compensate for it? Well, we're, we're changing our view hugely. One of the things that Tim and Cheryl and our colleagues, Sam Krauss and others, have been doing is investigating how widespread were these ditched agricultural fields up and down the Rio Hondo that separates Mexico from Belize. And we've been stunned to find there are many, many, many more of these than we expected. And I argue, at least, I'm pretty sure I'm right, and I think they agree, um, that where we see ditched agricultural systems, it's the tip of the iceberg, the uh, soils immediately adjacent to those areas that are not ditched, we're also under agriculture. Well, that gives us a view of agriculture as being something that's more akin to southern Mississippi Valley agriculture right. with the entire floodplain under cultivation than the now quite old idea that every little fa every family had a one-acre milpa and that sort of thing. This is agribusiness, and this brings to us visions of large-scale markets and shipping and organization, multi-layered organizations. And I think we have to really rethink, and it's not true in every place, but it's true in this one, we have to really rethink what was the role that agriculture had in the economy, and it wasn't just for getting food. It was a business. It was a large-scale situation. And, and one of the case, things that... Then we can yeah, look at economics sorry. as possible cause for its collapse. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I, I think that, and, and I'd like to hear your take on this, one of the advances that has been made in addition to what you had mentioned, OSL dating and optically stimulated luminescence dating, which, like you say, I think is opening up windows in all elements of archaeology because it allows us to, uh, to date non-organic deposits, which is a wonderful thing. But one of the other advances that is especially striking in your part of the world is the ability to, to identify uh, terrain structures and subterrain st uh, structures through LIDAR and remote sensing technology. And you can, at this point, I assume, I mean, I'm not an expert in your area, certainly, but you can see where these ditches are and you can penetrate through the, the thick tropical forest cover to identify what the routes were and what some of the roads were and the features. How much has that advanced in the past few years? Well, gigantically, and, and before I address LIDAR, the one that everybody can access is Google Earth. Of course. Um, when we look at what we're finding these days of uh, these sorts of features in the Amazon former rainforest, most of it's being discovered by Google Earth by simply sitting at your computer. Right. And the same is true of what we've been finding. But LIDAR, um, which is an airplane-based laser imaging system, has fantastic ability to now penetrate through the canopy, also penetrate through water, and look at soil and earth structures uh, in a very, 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 very uh, high-resolution situation, high-resolution. So you can see um, things that are even difficult to see on the ground surface, like check dams and, and ditches that are infilled and things such as that. The um, 
uh, striking thing about the time of your question is, is that um, I'm leading a consortium. We've been putting this together for the past several weeks. We're about to put in a proposal for um, one of the largest LIDAR surveys ever done, covering all of northwestern Belize and all of the area along the, the, the Belize-Mexico um, border. So not only does this hold promise, we hope to materialize that promise and be able to um, um, see some incredible results within the next 12 months or so because we're going to apply this if we possibly can at all. And I guess your structure, your organizational structure, and I want to get back to this because sure. with, what you've, well, with what you've developed, you have a very functional year-round, I suspect, um, infrastructure that will allow you to advance your research methodologies and to expand the technological approaches that you do in a way that most universities simply can't do when they are constantly experiencing turnover in students and in resources sure. and there's a lack of continuity in many projects that forces many of them uh, to sort of shut their doors after they've reached a certain point, but you can go on. And so such questions like we talked about earlier, the Maya collapse, you can look at these and see how this emerges in light of, of changing technological and, and uh, academic in some ways advances, theoretical advances in, in uh, such things as complex society organizations, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it goes to what you've been able, your vision that you had uh, it goes to that, and and I'd like to know what your research questions have, how your research questions have been uh, sort of streamlined in light of not only your organizational structure, but in 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 light of the the most significant discoveries, say in the past few years. I don't know if we can say that they've been streamlined, but I do know we can say that every one of our excavations, and a typical excavation is. A excavation led by a senior graduate student who is excavating a, an elite residential group at, in the past year, <clears throat> the Maya site of Ishnoha, which is in the area we work in. They're collecting data for all of these at once. They're, every single question that we're asking is being dealt with in every single excavation. And then they are go commonly going off and they're doing their doctoral work on one aspect of that while they're feeding and importing their data back to the rest of us. Um, that, and I, I think the, the success is that all the people who are leading our excavations are people who are in that role. They, they have a vested interest in success. It's commonly their, their graduate work. And again, when you have people vested in success, they, 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 follow through, they do what they're expected to do, and they do, and, and they, 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 they bring their ingenuity and their inventiveness in, their perspectives, and every time one of those documents come out that says Master of Arts from some university dealing with one of our, uh, uh, with one of our topics, mm -hmm. that document also helps us and feeds back into, into, into what we're thinking of for our next steps. We're currently, by the way, uh, our excavation field work is being focused at the site of Ishnoha, which we've been in and out of for several years, but 
Now we're looking at the major architecture of the elite residences. We're looking at multiple aspects of it, surveying the settlement zone around it, and trying to really understand this site so we can compare it to Blue Creek, a site we worked at for 20 years, and to other such sites. So the milieu is constantly moving, but it is... Um, it stays generally focused. It's always driven by people's creativity. And, by the way, not always mine. Right. I'd like to ask you also, you know, we all we have, especially in the domain of uh, examining complex societies and changing social organizations and changing networks, what would you say, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but I think I will, what are Please some do. of the... Yeah, what are some of the... Uh, revisions to our understanding of Maya social organization and complexity based on your research projects and using your own area as, as, as sort of a long-term laboratory for examining these types of changes? Well, I would, I'd like to think there are two or three. Um, one of the things is that when we started this, and I think it's clear today, not just because of our work, but because of others, it was unclear as what was the nature of Maya kingship. Um, were there hierarchies within areas? Did, did, did one king at one city, I'll call it Lamilpa because that's the largest one near us, actually control the others around it? Or was it in the uh, Ferdell and Sheely model, a forest of kings who mm-hmm. were generally all independent, warring with each other, sometimes uh, sometimes ruling others, sometimes becoming independent. And I think that one thing that I pretty strongly can say from our work at Blue Creek from the first years is that we found evidence of there being a king there. It's a medium-sized center. It's not gigantic. But with a king at Blue Creek, as a case example, we can argue that basically every site that had plazas, pyramids, Delay surely had at one time or another a king, its own, its own how, its own independence, uh, its own uh, center of government, if you will, and 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 I think that by making those kinds of statements, we better understand that forest of kings. And when we look at the uh, a later period, I mentioned it already, the idea of collapse. We're looking at this as a processual set of a, a processual set of events where no one single thing happened, where some of these things can be documented, and we can go decide to look for other things that we can document. And of course, one of those was uh, thought to be long ago, not long ago, some time back, that ditch fields were a response to population pressures in the late Classic period. And of course, we know today the ditch fields at Blue Creek and elsewhere are actually built early, probably in the very early classic period, not as a response to population pressure, but at least in one case as a response to environmental devastation caused by those same people. So it's a constant rethinking. And, uh, you know, again, another question that I, I think a lot of people are interested in is, through time, how do the polities change? How do the organizational networks change? Is there more cooperation, interaction between major centers, urban centers <coughs> with each other? Or did that fragment as well as the uh, decline became more imminent and took root? 
I'm hesitant to say one or the other. We clearly document change. In the early classic, in the western part of our survey area, we see a good number of small cities, people building plazas, pyramid complexes, and seeming as though they didn't get finished, and those being shut down, terminated, abandoned perhaps, really early on, and then nearby, still only five miles away, the growth of a of a large city, you should know how we're working today, um, and the abandonment of all of those other public places. So they're clearly dynamics. And I don't believe that we can be so, I, I hate to say it, I'd love to spend 50 more years doing this because then I think we have it nailed, but I don't believe we can be so clear at this time to say one single principle occurred that it became more or less integrated, that sort of thing. But there surely were dynamics, and whether they're only local or whether they're reflections of regional and macro dynamics, we're not sure yet. There are, of course, the rise in the late classic of Kalik Mool as a major power in the region um, has been argued to be affecting the archaeology that we see. But, in fact, we don't see evidence of events in other huge cities affecting us. We, I think we're seeing events that are pretty much local. But we're, we're yet to know. Tom, we just have a couple of minutes left. I would like sure. to ask you, where do you see the thrust of Mayan research going in the next few years, and, and, and how do you see your operation um, either leading the way or being part of, of, of the next new points or the next new foci in, in Mayan archaeology? Well, I can first speak to what our organization is going to do in the next few years. We've you know, you, you're always wondering what you're going to do and how long you're going to do it, and we've agreed to at least another five-year plan, so that'll be 28 years of, of field work for us, and uh, hopefully someone else will be coming in to carry that on at some date. As far as leadership and the scholarship, I think that we are looking at, um, we, we're, we're looking at understanding those underlying economics. I think that when we see the degree to which, um, this is only an example, ditchfield agriculture, and there's also upland agriculture and Bajo agriculture that we're also dealing with, with the ditch fields that I mentioned before. And we see the role of agriculture being central to the economic world. Then we have to really rethink how power is established, and I think power is going to be proven to be established by, by economic underpinnings of these cities and who controls those. And I think the house, the royal elites, will be shown to be the controllers of these resources and thus how they get all sorts of good things in their homes like jade and such as that. Um, and I think that we will also be able to document much more closely some of those events and processes. And when we're able to come out with something that's more it's more definitive than it is right we're ready to today. Um, it's going to force more rethinking. I think that's the fun thing about my archaeology. As you said earlier, it's a really dynamic field. There are probably more archaeologists working in that area <clears throat> than anywhere else of the same landscapes, of the same square miles. Um, but every time we're in the field, every one of us are doing things that forces revision, forces thought, and makes the others think. 
and it's that that dynamism is absolutely fun. So sometimes you do find yourself following somebody else's really good idea if you could do something else with it. And sometimes you find yourself leading. And it's okay to do both. And um, my my so. guest, uh, we're going to have to end it, I'm afraid. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to follow up with you, Tom, in the near future because this is a fascinating topic and you certainly have a most wonderful organization for Thank advancing you. science research as well as promoting careers, which in this uh which in this very challenging field is no small accomplishment. My guest has been Tom Cooterjohn, uh, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Texas at Tyler. Thanks so much for your insights, Tom, and for the great work that you've been doing in your area. Stay tuned. Um, I, I, I should say let's um, wish you all the best. And hopefully your projects and your programs will continue to survive and to flourish. And uh, as far as we're concerned, another episode next week. Thanks so much, Tom Gurdjian. And we look forward to uh, another program next week. Thank you very much and stay well. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.